Okay. Uh, welcome back to the Life is Sweet podcast. Um, this is episode five. I'm John, and that's... I'm Jill. That's right. <laughs> that's who we both are. Um, it's been a while since uh, we recorded an episode. It's July 10th now. The last episode we, we recorded was uh, June 5th. Oh, I A see, lifetime yeah. ago. Yep. Back in pre fully vaxxed days the uh the dark ages well we had to wait till i got through my uh end of the year report card writing all that jazz uh sort of period we had to wait that out yeah it was a slog there in july june what is it now it's july now it's july now june was a slog oh my <laughs> It is still still a slog, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, lots of stuff happened. We won't talk about most of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we want to go back and do like a reset here and and uh, catch up on on some of the stuff that uh, that we had started talking about in the first couple episodes, and we just want to circle back and uh, just do. Just do a free-for-all. Well, this is just a a sort of beginning of summer reset. Um, Since I'm a teacher, summer, you know, July always feels like a big reset and recovery period. um, Sort of that rollover of the year in our schedule. And for me, it's a reset, too, because then um, my teacher spouse comes home and then I don't have the uh, run of the place anymore. I have to learn what it's like to live with a human again. <laughs> and uh, it's a growing period for all of us every year. <laughs> uh, I haven't been alone for uh, more than a couple of hours. Um, I, I did have a day or, or two alone um, when John went to the lake recently, but it had been, uh, I'd say, a good 10 months um, prior to that, that I had not spent more than an hour or two um, on my own, so I'm kind of the opposite, I guess. I'm in um, I'm in recovery from constant human interaction, uh, online and in person. Uh, going to remote learning didn't really change that aspect of anything. So, still, yeah, July the first week or two of July for me is always just sort of like siphoning off uh, all that energy and recovering, living inside my own head a little bit more, uh, doing yoga to uh, build the strength back up in my weak, weak uh, arms that have atrophied in the course of online learning and just, uh, yeah, enjoying, enjoying life, puttering around. It's good to putter. It's what I've been doing the whole year, pretty much the whole pandemic year, and uh, I've definitely uh, atrophied my inter- my people skills have just disappeared completely. I've gone completely feral, <laughs> feral. I don't know how to be a human anymore. I am trying. <laughs> Folks, I'm trying we need really to get hard. John out. We need to get him talking to people who are not me. We gotta <laughs> get Learning this going. Learning how words work, <laughs> the, the like the rituals that uh, that we all do as people when we uh, see each other and talk to each other. Um, that we enjoy being together. 
um, seeing another person. Um, I can't have a panic attack every time I see another person. Let's no. put it that way. I need to get get through that somehow. Um, so pray for me. <laughs> Keep them in your thoughts. Keep me. <laughs> Keep me also in your <laughs> thoughts. Um, I guess, yeah, even even during remote learning, I was still at the school. I was still interacting with my coworkers and friends every day. So I, I definitely haven't experienced that part of the pandemic that a lot of people have where they feel very out of practice uh, with in-person interaction and maybe uncomfortable um, I've just sort of been in the soup the whole time. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't really have that part. It still feels like a very normal, surprisingly normal start of the spring break. Um, this is the first year where uh, I'm actually a permanent now. I have a permanent contract. So um, I'm not hurtling into the unknown over the summer, uh, which is real nice. Um, yeah, what does that feel like? Uh, it's. I feel like a lot of the emotions from this year have not fully manifested. Um, it's more of like just the absence of anxiety or panic. Um, it's what does not that a, feel like? <laughs> it's it's good. It's it's real good. Um, I hope to feel that one day. Yeah, I I'm starting to feel my ability to pay attention returning. Um. The stress and anxiety was definitely causing a lot of squirrel brain um, and and just not being able to keep track of anything. So I've really settled down and been reading, you know, whole novels and and focusing on some projects and just remembering how to do, <laughs> do one thing at a time um, and uh just feeling my brain power sort of return um, a little bit instead of feeling like it's it's shorting out, um, which is kind of what June felt like. It just felt like constant, uh, you know, the engine not turning over in my brain. Yeah, I think June, June was, I'm June was rough for both of us. It felt like we were out of gas. We were just like um stalling and crawling and uh just like dragging ourselves across the finish line yeah of your school year mm -hmm. um i think we did it though oh yeah yeah absolutely um again i was very lucky to have john here keeping the house together so that i didn't have to think about that which is huge um i had such a good class of kids this year they were just wonderful humans um so really had no trouble there um and uh you know i i love my my colleagues and my my folks at the school so um i think i i came out it just kind of makes you realize like i i don't have kids we don't have kids of our own um and i have you know a job that I like with people that I like with an admin that is supportive and that I trust. Um, and it was still a really rough year, even with all of those, um, sort of protective factors, um, at a certain point, I, I think I held out longer than other teachers I know, um, before succumbing through the year. Like, I feel like I kind of, I had it together until about December. 
and then it was all kind of rolling from there. But, uh, you know, I didn't have to worry about kids at home trying to do remote learning or all of these other things. Um, so just, it makes you realize what other frontline workers, what other teachers who have more pressures, what, what other frontline workers are dealing with, um, throughout this year. If, if, you know, I, with a, a well-paying job, um, that I like where I feel good, uh, is still just crawling, uh, slugging my way over the finish line like some sort of big banana slug um yeah it just it definitely for me gives me an appreciation of where a lot of other people um are at especially if your frontline job does not pay you a living wage um in these times no experience with that let me tell you (laughs) yeah we preserve humane jobs for goodness sakes if you heard of this Bill 64 thing, um, I'm just going to go on a limb here and say that it sucks. It's not great, Bob. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's not well-intentioned to improve the, the public school system. Um, even with the current cuts that have been made, my kids this year are going from a class of 20 to their next year where they will be in classes of 30. They have a 30% over 30% increase in class size going from this crazy alternate learning, remote learning year to, you know, into a higher grade that they might not, like, they're pretty, we got through the curriculum, they did really well, but, like, socially, they're they're not used to being in a group that big anymore. Um, and so like, I'm actually not worried about their academics. I'm worried about their social development and how that's going to feel for them next year. Just going from my kids were in alternate days. So they were actually in groups of 10 for most of this year and they loved it. Um, and now they're being put into groups of 30 next year. Um, so yeah, that's, there's a lot of not great aspects, but I won't get into that. Just, um, um, Check out Manitoba school boards. A lot of the divisions have posted information. There's a rural voices group that started up. There's lots of places, Red for Ed, Manitoba. There's lots of different places that you can check out and see. Um, they've they've got information about what's bad about this. Uh, if you personally know me and you need a, a rundown, I'm always happy to provide that. But uh, it it's... Um, it's not intended to improve the quality of public education for normal people. Um, that's not its intention. Its intention is to make public education for working class kids more stripped down, more streamlined, getting them ready to be a compliant um, and passive workforce that takes what they're given. Um, and meanwhile, funneling money into into private education so that well-off kids have things like the arts and um, technical training and all of these opportunities um, while other schools are being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed, losing EAs, losing teachers, crammed into bigger classes. So anyways, yeah, I'll end rant. It's not great. Not great. Yeah. And um, as Jill said, yeah, the info's out there you want easy to to check out tell it's not about uh 
teachers wanting more money and complaining about no we're, money. we're so, quite good <laughs> like tell your dads and your uncles and your bro friends that you know uh that's not what it's about and at it's all. also like uh if anyone says i don't know where this idea comes from but like school principals or vice principals pay them as much money as they want they are worth their weight in gold a good principal here here <laughs> a good principal or admin um the amount of work that they do they work through the summer they work in the evenings like they like they have almost no downtime um the amount that they're dealing with and they they do it well for the most part um so yeah yeah <laughs> just there's not any fat to trim um, my division was forced to make cuts to administrative assistance and it slowed the system right down because those people were doing actual jobs that need doing. And if they're not there, those jobs don't get done as quickly. There's not people just sitting around not doing anything in the system. That's not a thing. Yeah, exactly. That's not a thing. It's not about more money. It's not actually about improving education um, or test scores or doing better at math or any of that stuff. If you got anyone in your life who's really concerned about uh, fighting uh, or talks a big game about uh, not liking authoritarianism or petty tyranny, uh, they can put their money where their mouth is and uh, support uh, the stopping of Bill 64 somehow by getting actually involved in something. Yeah. Instead of just being, you know, one of those people. Yeah. So we've, uh, school's over. Um, luckily, I didn't have to, I'm not moving classrooms, so I didn't have to bring home as much stuff as I usually do. But I did bring home all my plants um, because we're not allowed to go into the school to water them over the, uh, over the summer break. Our house is a jungle. It's uh, gotten a lot greener in here. I'm not um, complaining. It's yeah, it's quite lovely. Um, my poor monstera, it's doing quite well, but um, it one of its leaves actually got burnt on the dash. I didn't realize just how sensitive it is, but it sat on the dashboard in the car for mm, I want to say 15 seconds. Yeah, and cars are like greenhouses. Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's recovering in the corner in its uh, very indirect light. Um, if you're singed, they're singed. <laughs> Take your plants out of your car. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a good first um, ten days of break. Uh, I've lost my sleep schedule already, which um, the camping uh, kind of broke it. Um, so that was we we did our first. We booked a lot of camping trips in Manitoba. Um, since that seemed like the safe bet uh, for the summer, things to yeah, do. Yeah, with, with the Vax passports and what whatnot. You never know. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen. Well, and different provinces just have different rules about who can book currently and all of these things. So we, we took our opportunity and we booked three different places in provincial parts. And then we also got um, a campsite in Wasagamine in uh, Riding Mountain for later in the summer as well. Yeah, and we didn't put all our eggs in the oh, Manitoba camping no. basket. Though. That's true. We I did, did roll the dice on <laughs> on one thing. <laughs> I did decide to roll the dice. Yes. Um. Well, 
so last year uh, at the start of the pandemic, I had tickets to see Patti Smith in Minneapolis um, in May um, and, uh, of course, could not go. Um, and then uh, she announced a concert. It's an outside concert in Minneapolis, August 7th. Um, and so just gambling that maybe they'll be letting fully vaxxed people across the border. Um, I bought tickets, uh, to see that, but, uh, if it doesn't work out, we'll, we'll just sell them. Um, so I figured, uh, just lose, lose a couple bucks in maybe processing fees, um, if we can't go anyways, but if we can, um, then we can sort of camp our way down there. The festival's outside, um, it's pretty, pretty low, um, low engagement, uh, sort of thing. You're not cramming into a theater with a bunch of people or anything. Um, but we'll see what happens. I think we won't know anything until, um, July 21st when the government reevaluates the board. I could see, I could see why they would not, um, just the contact tracing would be such a nightmare. Um, I guess it just depends on on the information about sort of fully vax um people with fully vax uh sorry people who are fully vaxxed and and what their um immunity is like whether or not they're transmitting the delta virus or things like that so we shall see if we can go that'll be nice if we can't that's fine we've got lots of real nice camping booked here in Manitoba Yeah totally and it's always nice to get out of the red river valley like the bathtub drain of canada <laughs> uh just the swampy the swampy bathtub ring uh it's not very swampy right now no it's well it's hot and dry uh more drought i'm sure more updates on that uh, as we go along yeah um but yeah it is nice to realize that uh manitoba isn't just flat and and green and yellowish brown. Yeah, so we went to last week we went to Turtle Mountain, Adam Lake. Adam Lake. Um there's a sort of an overflow area, Lakeview Bay, um that has real nice sites. Um we went there last year and we noticed that one specific site was right on the lake, so we booked that one this year. Um lovely trails to hike around. Uh you know, loons, all the good stuff. It was uh, actually the one cool sort of stretch of days was when we were out there. It was like 12 degrees on on Tuesday when we were out there. So it was actually shockingly cool, um, which was quite, quite nice. Um, and there was a bit of rain when we were out there. Um, Turtle Mountain is, is lovely. Um, as well, it's sort of traditional lands of, of Anishinaabe and Dakota people. There is a Métis um, community around Lake Metagosh. Um, so it's sort of a place where a lot of different groups have, have gathered and mixed. Um, and it's now uh, a provincial park. Lots of diversity. Um, we saw lots of great mushrooms and flowers and birds and wildlife while we were there. Yeah, just a cornucopia of life out there on... Ate our first wild mushroom. 
we survived. <laughs> we survived. Yeah, we went. We didn't uh, get sick. It nope. was delicious. Um, we found a puffball. Uh, it was a little puffball, like the giant ones are usually ones that people look for, although those don't usually come out until later in July. Um, but it was just a little puffball. But uh, they're they're one of the ones where if you find a puffball and you cut it open and it's the solid white, they're all sort of safe to eat. Um, so we we put it over the fire with a bit of butter and it was delicious. Yeah, I would uh, do that again. And uh, I would, I'll eat a wild mushroom that Jill picks because like, <laughs> why not? We may as well both go down. I don't want to live this life without her. <laughs> so I'll eat all the mushrooms she forages. Well, I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm not uh, going to turn into a hardcore forager or anything. I think there's lots of people who are very skilled at those things and I'm not one of them, but um Oyster mushrooms and and puffballs are sort of two of the, uh, you know, when they see them, um, sort of ones that you can you can go for. We actually saw quite a few other mushrooms, but it looked like there'd been a flush. Just we we were probably just a day or two past it, the prime of of a lot of the mushrooms that we found um, scattered around. Yeah, there were still some some around, and the uh, the rain. And the cool temperatures definitely made it feel like a mushroomy um, sort of experience. Yeah. Um, in more ways than one. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. <laughs> um, there's a nice walk that goes around the entire lake, Adam Lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do it in an afternoon. It's not strenuous. <laughs> Unless you have been remote teaching for a month um, and your legs have atrophied. Uh, I definitely survived and I felt okay the next day, but bit, what, what was it? 13 kilometers, um, were on my phone and m- the bottoms of my feet were like, please, no, please stop. Um, so yeah, I'm still, I'm definitely still in the process of getting back into, into, uh, summer shape. Have good shoes, go at your own pace. Mm-hmm. Um, you can walk forever. That's what we're built to do. <laughs> <laughs> there's it's still, how... there's definitely still a getting back into shape period, though. Oh yeah, well, absolutely, <laughs> there is. I'm, I'm not in shape either. Um, walking can be tough, especially as you get older. Yeah, but uh, it's yeah, as nice a to hike. Old. Um, we've been trying to do more, more hiking and, and beach days and stuff like that too. So even if we're not camping, we're heading out and, and checking out, uh, um, bogs and bird watching places and the beach. There's so much, um, marshes around Winnipeg. There's, it's really sort of the perfect, um, place to live, to be able to hit so many different ecosystems and, and spend time in them. Yeah. If you got a car, do it even if you even if you don't i'm sure there's um there's usually secret pockets in your neighborhood yeah that uh where something interesting is happening yeah um we live down by the river anyway and there's lots of community gardens and green spaces yeah and things there's lots of good stuff to do and yeah turtle mountain was great have a uh i would definitely go back yeah, we're going to uh, Duck Mountain next week. So we're going to all the fake Prairie Mountains. Uh, and we'll be going to Riding Mountain in August. So 
all the Can't go to the real mountains. All the not actually mountains that you can access in Manitoba, we're going to them. Not the Porcupine Hills, though. No. Where? <laughs> wait, where are the? I think those are n- north of Duck Mountain, even. Okay. So um, I don't know if we're allowed to travel past the 50th parallel yet. I don't know. I'm not sure where that that sort of thing is yet. You can you can look it up on Google Maps. Maybe we'll we'll get up there at some point. Yeah, I mean, I hope um, it didn't seem very busy with tourists um, in Boisvane, uh, which is is usually, um, you know, hopefully it was just because it was Monday Tuesday sort of start of the week. Um, but uh, I know a lot of the um, folks who depend on on tourism in that area um hopefully things pick up a little bit as summer goes on yeah i'm i'm sure it will but yeah we did turtle mountain and it's nice to drive to take uh one of the uh not the trans canada back yeah um turtle mountain also fast fact possible resting place of sitting bulls remains right which is uh, nice. Yeah, so we we spent time there, and then um, we sort of meandered our way back. There's a, um, it's not actually really a ghost town anymore. There's a little town called Homefield. It's kind of a village. I, I guess I'd say it's like a hamlet or village. Um, and uh, I know about it um, because when I worked at an antique store, some of the vendors and regular customers, they sort of had their... Um, guess not cabins, but like sort of retreats uh, out there. Um, It's just sort of one of those places where at one time you could buy a a house for cash, basically. Um, And we went out there, I want to say seven or eight years ago. I don't even know. Um, But it's changed a little bit. It definitely seems like more of the properties have been bought and people have been doing a little bit. So there's sort of like an art uh, retreat there. There's somebody who owns the old general store and has a little museum in it. Um, There's, you know, just people with with little um, acreages. Uh, We saw some big, big old Clydesdale workhorses. And uh, yeah, it just kind of has this little, like, I don't know, like magical feeling um i don't not magical but um just not your regular like semi-abandoned prairie town vibe um can you gentrify a ghost town uh i didn't i wouldn't call that uh (laughs) i don't think so i don't think so it i don't think this is nobody was displaced nobody's displaced the people, the people were, had already been displaced. They had all exactly. They had um, already been displaced. They were they were gone. This is a a village site that uh, that was dead. It seemed yeah. dead essentially, like so many that you see uh, across the prairies. And uh, it's you know it's the phenomenon of of people. I, I think want wanting to escape the city or to have well, it's space. Just, farms are and, not as small as they used to be. They're big operations now. You don't need very many people to operate a farm anymore. Um, and so you just, and especially with this discovery of natural gas and oil, 
I mean, a lot of these areas, uh, you know, these really small towns didn't quite hold out because, you know, that that one was there because there was a milling. Um, there was a mill there. There was a flour right. mill there. Um, and then that isn't in operation anymore. So sort of the reason for the, the town um, disappears. Yeah. And then the reason that people want to move back um, is then that cheap, yeah, that cheap land, that cheap real estate. Yeah, it's not quite like the one dollar lots that uh, somewhere else in the south southwest part of the province. Yeah, did or does I forget what uh, what town that was, but that was uh well I think outside of Burden there was a town that was trying to entice people with um, free land or free lots um, to come back, but. I think even in, you know, I, I come from that area and even in some of the small towns, the housing prices have gone up. So you see people spreading back out a little bit um, if they're able to commute for their jobs, um, spreading out to some of these towns that have been uh, more ghost towns or whatever um, and and coming out because they can actually buy a house for you know, a couple thousand dollars or what have you. Yeah, if you have like, uh, if you have a bit of cash, if you're able to commute, if you're able to do these things, obviously it's, that uh, it's not. Yeah, it's that not, selects a, a small bit of the population. Yeah, not everyone is able to do this, obviously. But uh, if you are, if you are able to, it seems like nice. Honestly. And I, I think some people are starting to retire to places like that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, going from Turtle Mount to Homefield, and then we stopped somewhere. Um, somewhere I wanted to go for a while. To yeah. Because I'd heard of. We, thought we didn't it would, know what to expect when we got there. Yeah, I don't think we were expecting what we found. At uh, the Star Mound. Yeah, so we went to the Star Mound. Um and John had just, I just hadn't even Googled it. I had just it's heard. A, it's a glacial moraine that was left over. Yeah. It's somewhere in, in the south southwest Manitoba, close to the close to the U.S. border. Yeah. Um, you can see the border from the top of the, of the mound. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty, pretty big hill. Yeah. Um, rising on top. And the, I guess the claim to fame, the reason I wanted to check it out is there, I heard, there was, um... A beaver-shaped mound that had been built by um, indigenous people in the past was there on top of this mound. Yeah, that's the only thing that I knew about it. So that's what I was expecting. So that's what we were that (laughs) that's what we were going to go check out and and see see what what that was all about. And then um, we got there and uh, it has been basically turned into a um shrine for pioneers i guess you'd say it's a a settler temple yeah so they've moved um there's an old school it looks like the old school has been in several different places and then for the centennial they moved it up here to turn it into like a little museum uh which is fine whatever um but then they at 
looks like maybe for the Manitoba Centennial or at some point. I think it was for both Centennials. Yeah, they, they sunk, and uh, sunk a flagpole straight into the middle of this um, early indigenous archaeology um, that had already been massively disturbed and desecrated Um from what I was able to even find of information on the internet, there's nothing there. You won't go there and learn anything about the indigenous people uh, at this site. Um, and that's desecrated the actual definition of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of actually desecrated. something that was likely sacred. It, it, what did at one point have skeletons and goods, but those were plundered. Uh, I, I wasn't able to find any information about where, like the skeletons might have gone, which museum? I, it sounds like maybe an American one. Um, yeah, because it was an American archaeologist. Yeah, or probably just who knows, maybe a legit archaeologist, but could have just been some guy. Yeah, I mean, a lot of archaeologists at that time. This was, was the just early twentieth century. Just some yeah. guy. Um, and just some guy who was really into like indigenous stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it looks like it was quite disturbed. Um, the artifacts and the, the skeletons were moved. Um, so there it sounds like there isn't really anything substantial left in it, but the shape is still there. Um, and it is still one of the few remaining markers of, of indigenous presence um, in Manitoba, uh, at least in southern Manitoba, which has been, you know, heavily turn to western style agriculture um a lot of these trails and and markers and things like that have been erased or uh destroyed intentionally um or just like repurposed well yeah and and you really have to look at the fact that they chose to put the flagpole right in the middle of this thing not beside it there's a big yard there's lots of space where it could be instead but it is smack in the middle I mean, I think even as if you're not an indigenous person and not particularly like political or left leaning, it's quite ex- it's quite explicit. It was very what shocking. The, it just what like, the intention I, I shouldn't have been shocked here. It was yeah, like literally. There's plaques set up where they tell you there's there's a big plaque set up about the Northwest Mounted Police yeah. ride out. Um, yeah, what were they riding out? And to what do? were they doing? Mm. <laughs> what they were coming out to do? I don't know. And then all the brave pioneers that followed them. Um, why did they need the Northwest Mounted Police to go ahead of them? Um, and then, uh, and then they bravely then just like uh, set up farms on this now safe land. <laughs> That had been, yeah, intentionally cleared. Intentionally cleared. So this is all in their, this is all in the plaque. Um, well, not the not there. the intentional clearing of indigenous people. That was not the plaque. It, you don't even have to read behind, like between the lines yeah. anymore. Like there's sent out Northwest Mounted Police. Yeah. Then the pioneers came. Yeah. What What happened? Yeah. Uh. Yeah. And then. They take this one room schoolhouse, mm-hmm. like the, uh, like the avatar of like uh, of pioneer child, white child, European child, uh, yeah, innocence and the good old days and whatnot. They take it from its original location, 
Um, they could put it anywhere. I think it was originally in, in the town of Snowflake or something. You, you put it on top of this uh, sacred indigenous site yeah. as a, a museum, uh, like a white pioneer settler museum on top for all like the, the beautiful little, little white children um, to come and, and reminisce about the good old days. And then you intentionally stick a giant flagpole like right into the middle of this uh, ancient burial mound. Yeah, and should note that the flag was at full mast, not at half mast, um, like many flags have been o- across the country. Um, but just the layers of indignity uh, are, were breathtaking. Just ab- absolutely. Like if you want like just a, a snapshot of what Canada is, uh, that is... That's what it is. Yeah. It's, um, if you want to know what, like, what white supremacy in Canada looks like, or in Manitoba, or in the towns where you live, like, that's literally what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that was, uh, you know, and and just um, not good, but, like, it was a, a powerful reminder of of, you know, whose land it had been and what happened, right? Why are we looking at the landscape and why does it look the way that it looks? It's, um, yeah, it's and, a reminder of whose land it was, yeah. but is not anymore, and whose land it is now. Yeah. Um, and yeah. just whose it should be, right? And and all the sort of knowledge um, that isn't there. Right. There's no there's no information. There's no I couldn't I could barely find anything online about this site. Um, It looks like it was it would have belonged to indigenous groups who had moved out from the area long ago, similar to the petroglyphs. Um, But, you know, that's it. It it could have been a village site that had been abandoned by the time the Lavarandre yeah, expedition got but there. like, but you don't why, know why abandoned? Why it's just left there? You know all these things that um, these pieces of history and these stories that should be collected and and found and told and um, you know celebrated uh, is just gone and not there um, at all. Yeah, if uh, if you're listening to this and you happen to live in like the Snowflake Star Mound area, or if you know anyone who does and uh, has been wondering these same things or thinking these same things, or are if anyone's in connected connected to any of the uh, indigenous uh, communities that have a connection to or a claim to the Star Mound, um, honestly, I don't. That's not me. I don't know any of no. of those people. Um. But if you do, um, perhaps like some of the more progressive-minded people who live in the area, if there are any, I'm sure there are, um, would like to get together and and maybe do something yeah, about that. Absolutely. At the at the least, maybe uh, removing that school to a more appropriate place and taking that uh, flagpole out. Yeah, I think at the very, if, if, even if you're not going to move the school, taking the flagpole out and, um, and you know, the museum is very well cared for. Somebody has put money 
into it's looking actually, at it's time. Immaculately yeah. maintained. I feel like that time and effort could also be spent on investigating the history of the indigenous folks in that area and the the mound itself. And um, yeah, it's it's also starkly seeing that school for white children just immaculately preserved, like yeah, contrasted with the. Uh, residential schools and the mass graves of indigenous children. Yeah, exactly. Is just nauseating. Yeah, like honestly, yeah. if you're at all. If when you, you compare it, it to at you know this one room schoolhouse, um, and the you know countless other one room schoolhouses uh, that they put so much effort into building because they wanted their kids to be near them. They didn't exactly. build giant boarding schools for farm kids to be sent away to. They got one-room schoolhouses that they could walk to from their homes and walk back to for, you know, every day. Um, so that's that's a big contrast too, right? What, what were settlers getting at the same time that Indigenous families were being forced, uh, forcibly, uh, forced to send their kids or having their, their children forcibly taken from them? Um, when in the treaties, what they, what they thought they were agreeing to is something more like what the settlers were getting, which was one room schoolhouses in proximity to where they lived, um, and were able to farm and make a living, um, and, and prosper on stolen land. Yeah. The starkness is, it's, it's glaring. It's just glaring there's almost like no words to like to describe the difference between you know what the white pioneer children experienced that level of like care and the maintenance of of the child of of this one-room schoolhouse well all Something the that, nostalgia that and love that, that goes towards yeah. it right like that's they get that different view of a it, completely different, different view when indigenous children of the same era um, just experienced just like a nightmare, just like a waking nightmare yeah. of trauma that just obliterated generations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just disgusting. Yeah. There's no no other words for it. So our review of, of the Star Mound, not great. It sucks. Boo. <laughs> thumbs, thumbs down to the Star Mound. Yep. Uh, if any, yeah, seriously, if anyone knows people that can do something about it, please, please do. Um, yeah, I guess that's about it. We're going we should rant about something else. So yeah, I uh, kicked off the summer with a workshop on natural dyeing, um, which was pretty fun. Natural dyeing, like... You know, I'm sorry. I didn't even do the joke properly. <laughs> You've heard it so I've many heard it times. Several times. <laughs> uh, dyeing yarn with natural uh, materials. Uh, yes. Not like euthanasia. No. That'd be unnatural, I suppose. Oh my god. I'm uh, okay. <laughs> stop. I'm stopping. <laughs> go. Go ahead. Anyways, I did this workshop. Um, I went out to Longway Homestead, uh, which is a uh, little sheep farm out by St. 
Genevieve. Um, and she also has um, a sort of small scale wool mill out there, the only one in Manitoba. So uh, she's been out there for a number of years. I've been out there a few times. Um, and uh, she offers courses. Um, so this one was on natural dyeing. I'm going to one about um, indigo specifically uh, at the end of July. But um, this was, we, we picked out um, different yarns and then we used flowers or different materials to, um, natural materials to dye yarn with. Um, so she talked to us just about the process and how she does it. Um, we had, uh, sort of dye pots, um, set up outside. She had different kinds of burners. I should also mention that this was the day that it was 38 degrees in Manitoba. Um, so luckily there was lots of shade, but it was still very warm. Um, but it was still a lovely afternoon anyways. Um, so I came back with, yeah, like with five skeins of different colored, um, yarn, um, and part of this is I'm, I'm growing some... What's a skein? Skein is a length of yarn, um, sort of uh, unwound, I guess, uh, not in a ball. A length of yarn, not in a ball. Yeah, just kind of like of loop, looped into a circle. Um, usually skeins are... Is that what your contraction makes? Yeah, so my... <laughs> <laughs> my Your Victorian time machine contraption. Yeah, that looks like an umbrella. Um, it it you could put skeins on it and turn them into cakes or it has balls. Has a hand crank. It's made yeah. of wood. Yes, clamps on the table. Um, but you could also take yarn and turn it what into it a skein. Um, this the turning thing is the swift. The thing that looks like an umbrella is a swift, and then the uh, there's a ball winder that you put the yarn onto. Swift and ball winder. Yeah. So anyways, I, I died. The Swift and ball winder yarn company. <laughs> Look for that at your local farmer's market. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I did the, um, I, we died with um, Coreopsis, which is something I'm growing, which has not thrown out any flowers yet this year. Um, we died with, yeah, Coreopsis uh, to get orange, goldenrod to get yellow, uh, Black Knight Scabiosa flowers to get kind of a bluey gray. Um, logwood to get purple, which is sort of the bark of a tree. And then um, this word, I always, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, like cochinelle. Um, it's a bug. It's a ground out bug that makes things pink. Oh, the cochinelle. Co it's, 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 it's a natural colorant found in lots of food and other things as well oh what color does it make it makes like pinks and and um purple it depends on like you can you can add like different things or do it at different temperatures or whatever it is to get different colors um but crushed so you, bugs yeah can do lots of cool stuff yeah so it's it's one of they the things shellac yeah it's one of the things that crushed bugs uh can do these bugs grow on uh prickly pear cactuses in the southwest and so they're collected off of there southwest u.s yeah um not southwest and mexico and no no not here no so some of these were things that you could grow here some of them you have to buy um but uh if you if you you know have a burner and a pot um and you get some of these things then uh and and um 
a mordant. Uh, so alum uh, can be used as a mordant. Um, then you can dye natural fiber. So we did it with yarn, uh, wool yarn with a, a protein fiber. Um, I'd like to try dyeing with like cellulose with like cotton or linen. Um, but that's a bit of a different process too. Um, I've been resisting the urge to put in a big order to a natural dye company. Um, just letting my brain think logically about how much natural dyeing I will actually do um, in my life. <laughs> I only want to do it once. Yes. I'm sorry. I'll stop doing, doing these jokes. <sighs> um, anyways, uh, but I'd like to maybe do something with my kids next year because I'm teaching art. Um, so I, I'm not putting in an order right away, but thinking about um, what sort of projects could I do getting kids to actually um, try out uh, dyeing with natural fabrics or natural like flowers and, and recycled fabrics or whatever, whatever it is. So um, yeah, it was, it was really, uh, it was a good experience. I'd never done it before. Now I've done it. Um, I've got these lovely colors that I'm, I'm thinking I might try weaving out. Um, I've never really done much weaving, so I might try, um, try that out just cause these are, uh, these are really bright colors, um, that we did, which are quite lovely, but not actually what I knit with, um, for my own garments. I tend to knit with more earth tones, darker, like I, I like, you know, burgundies and dark greens and, uh, more blacks and whites or the natural colors of the sheep. Um, I'm not necessarily a big bright color knitter. Um, uh, even if I do fair isle, it tends to be muted, more muted colors. Um, so yeah, I'm thinking maybe, maybe, um, a weaving or something like that. Trying, trying my hand at, at that. Oh yeah. There's lots of things you could, you could weave in bright colors mm -hmm. for your, um, your lawn chair mesh. <laughs> well, you'd need a different cord for that. You'd probably need more macrame. Uh, this would be like just, you know, doing a test out and trying a wall hanging. Or I don't something know like anything that. about thread or weaving. I'm <laughs> sorry. My suggestion sucked. <laughs> uh, this just wouldn't be quite strong enough for that. Um, you need something a little thicker. But yeah, so that was lovely. Um, I'm going again. Uh in at the end of July. Um, this is one of those things that it's a good way to support producers. Um, it's a real tough year out there with the drought is very real. Um, some districts in Manitoba have declared agricultural states of emergency. Um, and it, there's not a lot of hay. Uh, so especially people who have livestock are having a real tough time um, have had to downsize their herds or their flocks because they simply cannot feed them, um, making tough decisions. So if there's a way that, um, like this, you could, you could pay for a workshop or buy a product, um, from a local producer in Manitoba, this really is the time to do it. If you look up the Instagrams for either Longway Homestead or Firm Fiola Farm, there are two little farms. They're like a kilometer away from each other, just uh, just outside Saint Genevieve, um, and uh, lovely humans. Um, there are also adorable sheep, and uh, on Firm Fiola, there is a uh, very cuddly llama named Coconut, uh, who will let you give her neck scritches um, and will come be your friend. Uh, at least that's what happened when I went there last year. 
Uh, and let me tell you folks, llama cuddles, uh, that's the good stuff. It's good. What makes a llama cuddle so good? They're very, very soft. Um, oh. And because their necks are so long, they're, you know, just a bit taller than you. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, they're just, they're just, and they're just such like peaceful, friendly creatures. Um, not all of them are super friendly, but this one is, she's the guard llama. Um, so often in a the mama llama, the, the mama llama, not the mama. Um, she's the guard llama. She keeps the sheep uh, safe. Um, but yeah, she, she does like humans. Um, and she'll, uh, the guard llama, the llama will keep the sheep safe from predators like coyotes. Yeah. Well, they'll charge, um, I believe is, is like, they'll draw sort of the, the predator away. Uh, um, similar to like a donkey or certain, yeah. Other, other animals is they'll, um, yeah, they'll, they'll get in the way. Um, of it so yeah uh, people with sheep flocks will often have a llama or two mixed in just I think that I think the llama is just a little more with it than the sheep are <laughs> yeah that's probably true <laughs> the sheep are, are are you know not the smartest creatures the llama's got a little bit better perspective on the world just uh, from being taller it's got a longer neck got a longer neck uh, a little more view big uh, ears maybe a little bit yeah. More between those ears. Yeah. They're a little bit smarter, I think. Um, but uh but yeah, they're just lovely creatures. Um and the, their fiber is uh wonderful as well. It's just not um water resistant the way that wool is. If I was a llama, I wouldn't want to be the sole llama in a flock of sheep. When, There's usually two. The... There's usually two. Oh. But well that's good. Maybe that's fine. Yeah. But when like the coyotes are circling or yeah. whatever, and you're just surrounded by these sheep that are just like, yeah, what's the problem? Hey, what happened? And yeah. you realize like it's up to you to <laughs> to take on these uh, these ferocious predators. I guess on, on your own, regardless of the sheep, because you know the sheep aren't going to do anything. They're yeah. not going to help you. I I wonder if. Yeah, I'm now just conjecturing, but I wonder if the llamas are just more physically intimidating as well. Oh yeah, probably. You know, they're tall, they cast a big shadow, and they're hefty creatures. Yeah. Can you ride a llama? Is that uh, Uh, is that done? Yes, kids, I think, and you can like if you're a lighter person or you're a kid. um, I don't know if llamas themselves are ridden in in the Andes. They're pack animals. Right, yeah. Yeah. They're, they carry they carry stuff. They carry stuff. Um, I don't know if they're pack if they're if they're ridden, but they certainly are pack animals. It would be nice to try like it'd be nice to have land to try like raising <laughs> animals. Maybe one day. We'll see. It's a lot of work. But for now, if uh if if you are a fiber person or you just want to show up somewhere and scritch a llama or uh, the Shetland sheep at Longway Homestead are also very friendly and uh, some of them will let you scritch them. Um, it's just, it's quite wonderful um, just to go out and uh, spend some time with the animals. So very therapeutic. Do recommend. Summer therapy in high gear here mm-hmm. with, uh, with Jill. 
yeah, I'm I'm doing that. Um, I started knitting a shawl. Um, I'm reading a lot. I've sort of over the last few months of school um, been accumulating a book hoard, uh, which I'm always sort of doing, but just sort of a a um, always felt like a very hopeful sort of gesture. Um, you know, this is for summer when I'm going to have time. Uh, this is for the future. Um, so yeah, I've started reading, uh, I've got a couple of novels that I've read. Um, I finished a novel called Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which was really good that I would recommend. Ham, Hamlet. Hamnet. Um, Hamnet. So, yeah. So sort of a, a historical fiction. Um, Shakespeare had a son, um, his only son named Hamnet, um, who died, um, and then a period of time later, he wrote the play Hamlet. Um, and so, uh, the any bo- connection there? <laughs> no, not at all. Didn't um, think so. Yeah, definitely not what the entire novel is about. Oh, okay, sweet. Sounds cool. Cool. Yeah, and then um, I read a collection of essays from an Icelandic uh, writer, Andre Magnuson. Um, the collection's called On Time and Water. So he writes, um, he's got a very interesting family. His grandfather left and was a doctor in the U.S. He actually operated on Oppenheimer. Um, Why? Uh, for like a heart attack. Who's Oppenheimer? <laughs> like the Manhattan Project. What did that do? Oh my God. I'm going to talk about my, I read a history book. <laughs> I should okay. know these things. Can you refresh um, my memory? Like I mean, refresh the, the audience's memory. The invention of the nuclear bomb. Oh, yeah. So, oh, op- I'm become death destroyer of worlds. Yeah, like that, that guy. guy. Yeah, that guy. Why so, would he, so he saved his life? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Why would um, he do that? That sounds bad. Well, he was a man who came in uh, to his, to his, uh, surgery and and needed surgery so um yeah his grandfather one of his grandfathers I the doctors were supposed to do no harm though anyways okay um did that um his one of his aunts um had actually gone to england to be a nanny and she was the nanny for the tolkien family um and okay i can get behind that yeah like so that. she an icelandic <laughs> lady and um, she was the nanny for the Tolkien Oppenheimer children. Oppenheimer doctor, bad, horrible, <laughs> Tolkien nanny, awesome, great. Yeah. Need more. So she was... Um, My priorities are... I have... No, I'm going to stop. <laughs> uh, so this, this, his aunt, uh, aunt or great aunt, I'm not sure, um, was a nanny for... I think probably great aunt um, was a nanny. And uh, she would tell uh, Tolkien's children stories about the hidden people and sort of myths and things from Iceland and uh, Tolkien would listen outside the door um, when she was talking about turf houses and hidden folk um, and all of these things. So Tolkien got all this like turf houses like Hobbit style Yeah houses? definitely describing a very Hobbit like sort of house. Um, so Tolkien got all that I'm got sure a lot of stuff from his Icelandic na- 
nanny? I think some of it, or at least like probably some of the imagery, like he would have known, uh, he was a, you know, a scholar of, of sagas and, and all this, um, uh, early English, like balladry and things like that. He was a philologist. Yeah. So, um, I don't know what a philologist is. I used to know, but I don't know anymore. Well, anyways, he he knew a lot of this stuff in terms of of the you know the sagas and the stories, but just sort of the um, learning about sort of the landscape and and what Iceland looks like and some of the sort of the everyday thinking or thoughts about um, life in in Iceland. Um, so yeah, anyways, he he writes a little bit about that, but then he also writes about climate change. Um, he's actually the person who wrote the epitaph for the first uh, glacier in Iceland to completely disappear a number of years ago. Um, and so he talks to, um, he sort of, his goal is to take um, this scientific information about climate change and talk about it in a way that um, is both easier to understand um, and in a way that people can can connect to um, a little bit more easily. Um, so he also talks to like the Dalai Lama. He you know talks to a lot of his family in in Iceland or travels to different places. Um, he has another like this is just a fascinating family. He has another uncle who's a famous like crocodile expert who um, actually saved several species of, of crocodile. Uh, there is an ancient crocodile named after him. Um, and uh, yeah, just uh, very interesting. Um, his grandparents used to climb glaciers uh, in Iceland and did a lot of early recording and things like that. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've just been, just been digging in. Um, I've, I've got, uh, lots of books on the docket, lots of reading ahead of me. Um, just reading for fun feels good on the brain. John's been, uh, oh, meanwhile, I'm like flitting from book to book. Uh, John is, um, is a machine and uh, is able to um, uh, work his way in and focus on on uh, his quite quite large history book. I'm pretty much finished it, other than the conclusion. I think I mentioned it in the first episode. Um, I was reading a People's History of the World by Chris Harmon, right? Uh, which was recommended to me um, early last year, I think, or late the year before. It was exactly what I was looking for at the time, which was a good, like, complete overarching view of the history of humanity um, as told from an ordinary person's perspective as much as possible. And uh, I guess that was the mission uh, Chris Harmon had when he was writing this book. And I thought think uh he succeeded pretty well um the 20th century uh well there's lots about the 20th century obviously anything about the manhattan project in there not that i read <laughs> oh wait there was something about the uh there was the uh, atomic bomb 
Oh, yeah. That's in there. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Atomic bomb is in the history of humanity. Mm. Because, like, there's so much... I feel like because there's so much to cover in the 20th century, especially, like, post-World War II, um, there's so much going on. Um, he can only give, like, cursory, very basic explanations for, like, momentous world-changing events. I think it's a good reference book. If you need to quickly, like, look up something and just have a, a good little little explainer on uh, what, uh, what, what's the, what was that uh, Peasants' Revolt or whatever happening in the 1500s? And I forget. I can look it up. You can look it up in this book. And, and uh, of course, you have a, a phone You need to now, look up Watt Tyler in your index. Yeah. He would be in there. No, it's a, a lot of info to process and uh, I don't have what am I trying to say like a, a cohesive view of world history to frame events happening nowadays um, this was a good a good help to that and you honestly you don't encounter the perspective of an ordinary person in the, like the normal discourse of, of things at all um History is written by the victors and usually focus on what certain men did. Uh, and then they sort of like leave, leave the rest out. But um, if history is a story of, of competing forces. Ordinary people are actors in history. Um, we might feel like we're individuals acting sovereignly. And there's not really much we can we can do um, in our daily lives, but um, ordinary people, uh, when they're organized and working together, all pulling in the same direction, um, guess what? Uh, they've done a lot of stuff in history, and I I would say um, the majority of what's good about uh, being alive here in 2021 where we're living has everything to do with loads of ordinary people working extremely hard and usually sacrificing a lot over and over and over again over the course of generations and hundreds of years, thousands of years to build, um, to build a humane world. Um, of course, being thwarted over and over again by people in charge and those people in charge vary from place to place and change from time to time but the process is pretty much is pretty much the same uh, ordinary people organized to assert their assert their power to to make their lives better it's a powerful thing it's hard to hard to oppose and you can really see that like the tides of history wash back and forth or the wheel of history that sort of that struggle how the struggle is the same in different times and different different places all over the world and one thing i learned i think i mentioned in the first episode i was reading about um the opening of the asian southeast asian markets uh if it is just exactly the same as like hanging uh hanging an open sign on a shop window except for an entire co continent Turns out, yes, it is. Except if uh, someone comes into your shop 
uh, with a gun, <laughs> points it at you, and tells you to turn your open sign on and to sell only to them uh, at a price that they dictate. Um, that's pretty much it. Yeah. That pretty much explains a lot of history, actually, if you think yeah. about it. So you're you're coming up on, you'll have to figure out what your next big read uh, will be after that. I want to um, keep on doing history, honestly. Yeah, I've got, um, I've got, I, I always try to sort of keep one fiction and one nonfiction. Um, when I'm at my most anxious, I tend to have 10 books started at once. Uh, but once I calm down, I sort of go through and finish a bunch of them and then try to streamline down to you know, two or three books minimum on the go. So I have been burning my way through the Expanse uh, series, which uh, continues. Right, I think you were all. Just very entertaining. Yeah. Um, and then I've got a couple of, um, I do have a few sort of nonfiction ones lined up um, that have arrived. Um, I ordered a book um, from a English, um, he's an archaeologist and historian. I've read a couple of his books on sort of um, Anglo-Saxon history uh, in in England and uh, the British Isles, um, Max Adams. Um, I read a history of sort of King Alfred and the Viking Wars of the seven, eight, nine hundreds, um, and then uh, history of King Oswald, uh, King of Northumbria, who is um, who Aragorn, who Tolkien based Aragorn on. Um, the Return of the King. He was the king who returned from exile. Um, Multiple Tolkien references. Were you by chance a Lord of the Rings fan as a <laughs> child? Uh, we'll just gloss over that. <laughs> um, but uh, he he has a new book out, um, which I ordered from England because it isn't out in Canada yet. Um, and uh, it's called um, The First Kingdom. Um, so it's about sort of the the deep um, dark ages, um, sort of just immediately after Rome withdraws from England. It's a period of time where there's very very little archaeological archaeological or um, written uh, reference for what was happening, um, which is why it's called the Dark Ages. Um, but it's an it's a period of time that. Um, more and more has been more fragments have been found more information um that leads us to understand that civilization didn't necessarily um completely collapse with the romans that there was still sophisticated culture and and just a, a reorganization of power um at this time so it's sort of about that that period so i'm looking forward to reading that um Anglo-Saxon history is something I have a big soft spot for. Um, and then I also have, it's sort of a classic, um, I think lots of people have already read it, but I haven't yet, um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's um, Braiding Sweetgrass, just about uh, plants, um, indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, um, and bringing those things together, um, and just sort of an um, indigenous understanding of the land. Um, which as somebody who grows things uh, here and, um, you know, having, uh, you know, I, I have indigenous family, but um, no one is really a, a large scale grower anymore. Um, you know, my Métis family were mostly chased off their land um, for the most part. I mean, my parents garden, that's about it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's it'll just be, 
I think it's just vital, vital reading. Um, something important. Did like, or any of your relatives or Hank's relatives, like avid, like gardeners, hunters, was there any sort of like that? Uh... Well, that's how they would have grown up. Like they, they had, um, you know, they had to move sort of from marginal space to marginal space. You know, they have places like St. Madeline they or St. Mark. Like... Yeah, they did. They had sort of a little farm. Um, they had to move around quite a few places. Um, they St. Madeline's a famous one yeah. where the Métis were forcibly Yeah, so that, right? that would sort of, right, they'd settle in these road allowances um, in this marginal space, and then eventually when, when a settler wanted that space a little bit more, they'd be chased out again. Um, and so they lived in a couple of different places, um, but, uh, and they, so my stepdad and his brothers, they would have done like some, you know, snaring and hunting. Um, they had some horses, they, they did a bit of farming. Um, but, uh, at a, in the mid fifties, um, one of his older brothers who'd been thrown from a horse, um, and had died, you know, there wasn't universal health care at this time and they were, they were quite poor. Um, he, they think maybe like an aneurysm or something like they, he'd seemed fine after being thrown and then suddenly dropped dead. So internal bleeding can, yeah, can do that. something like that. So his, one of his oldest, older brothers had passed. Um, and then their house burnt down. And uh, this was just too much bad luck. And so Child and Family Services, which would have been the child, Children's Aid Society at that time, literally showed up in big black cars and popped all the kids in and took them away. Um, so, like, that's not like hyperbole. No, no, no. That's literally, yeah, no. That's My stepdad was, you know, uh, five or six when this happened. Um, and he said, yeah, just a big, big black car. People got out and they're like, you're coming with us. Um, so my stepdad and some of his siblings spent a few years living in a shelter in Brandon. Um, you're talking about, this is the 60s scoop. Yeah, this about. is like, but this is happening in the mid to late 50s. Um, so they spent a few years there. Uh, my stepdad did because he was too young to be farm labor and too old to be an adorable toddler. So his younger sisters um, were were fostered out. Luckily, none of the children were lost. Um, they were all eventually reclaimed. Um, but once they were sort of... Re that's really, that's incredible. Actually. Yeah, yeah. So they did manage. And his older brothers, they were sent there as teenagers. And they were there for about a week before they <laughs> managed to run away and skedaddle. Um, and some of my older aunties were already married. Um, but the younger kids were, were scooped and fostered out. So my stepdad spent a few years there, a few years with a farm, a Ukrainian farm family. Um, and then once they sort of got all the kids back together, they just left Manitoba. Um, they went to Mooseman, um, and they, they settled in town. Um, they were just, just to get, you know, get away, right? Get out of reach. Um, and so that was where my stepdad went to high school up until grade 10 or 11 or whatever it was. Um, and where most of my aunts and uncles ended up graduating from the ones that did graduate. Oh, okay. They went to Mooseman. Yeah. Yeah. School, they, high school yeah. As well. So that's, that's where my parents met was cause, um, that's where, uh, they ended up. Right. 
Interesting. Yeah. Um, hmm. So yeah, always always had gardens. Um, we've always had a garden, and and um, you know some of my cousins are are farmers as well. But um, I don't know. Just lots of good reading up ahead. Um, we haven't really planned it, but hopefully at some point we'll go. Now that we're fully vaxxed, we can go back to Saskatchewan. My parents are fully vaxxed. Um, so we can at least do some visiting uh, at some point in the future um, and and uh, actually be able to spend some time and, and socialize. Um, so yeah, lots, of, lots to look forward to. All right. So yeah, let's wrap it up here. We're about like an hour and 20 in. Um, thanks for joining us for episode five and, uh, have a good summer. We don't know when we're going to record another one. (laughs) Who's to say? Well, I'm sure we'll have traveled somewhere else or camped somewhere else. I'm already losing track of what day it is, so... Time doesn't matter and that's in a good way now. Mm -hmm. Um, let's hope the heat wave breaks. We don't all all burn up. Let's hope the... keep uh, Keep rain thoughts in your head. Let's hope the ocean doesn't catch on fire again. Um, and we'll uh, meet you all uh, again in August or sometime in the future. Who knows? <laughs> May you be well. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>